Last time we began a theological review of the role of the apostles in the book of Acts to determine the propriety of the historic title, Acts of the Apostles. Our question is, are the apostles the major characters in the book? In our review of chapter 1, we saw that the apostles' reception of the Holy Spirit and his special office as their helper or comforter, in keeping with Jesus' promises in John 14-16, through 16, was properly and formally the inauguration of the rule of Christ over the earth. Jesus had received the dignity and authority to rule. He had been enthroned before the angels in heaven. He had defeated and subjugated his enemies through the work of the cross and the resurrection. But it was not until he had an earthly witness to his glory and an earthly mouthpiece for his authority that he could truly be said to be ruling the earth. That came through the apostles when they received the power of the Holy Spirit. Before we advance to Acts 2 in our review, we should further note that Acts 1 gives important information regarding the nature of the apostolic office, namely its qualifications and perpetuity. In Acts 1, 15-26, the replacement of Judas is selected. Regarding the perpetuity of the apostolic office, we learn two important principles. One, it is not death, but disqualification that would terminate a man's apostleship and thus require another to take his office. Peter says that by transgression, namely apostasy, Judas fell from his apostleship. Although their fidelity was not supernaturally guaranteed, according to 1 Corinthians 9.27, Judas was evidently the only apostle to become disqualified, and consequently he was the only apostle to be succeeded or replaced. Two, it would not be necessary for the apostles to be alive on earth in order for them to continually fulfill their role and work. Moses was always the lawgiver of Israel, and he was the only lawgiver of Israel. Even multiple millennia after his death, Jesus said that Moses testified to Israel about him through Moses' writings, John 5, 39-47. James the Elder said that Moses was preached and known throughout the world by the proclamation of his writings in the synagogues, Acts 15, 21. So also the apostles would continue to fulfill their role throughout subsequent generations of believers through their words, according to Jesus in John 17, 20. And this anticipated that the apostles were going to produce a body of scripture like Moses before them. We also find the qualifications for apostleship outlined. One, faithfulness to Jesus. This is perhaps obvious, but it was the most stressed qualification in the teaching of Jesus himself. Many of the statements of Christ most commonly used to enjoin believers to uncompromising fidelity today are actually in their context words to the apostles regarding their special service to Christ, and they only apply to believers in general in a secondary sense. For example, see Matthew 10, 32 through 33. 
Faithfulness to Jesus for the apostles meant, of course, accepting his teaching and his claims about himself and the witnesses God gave to the same, but it also meant enduring the trial of his crucifixion and the period of time when he was dead, believing in the scandalous truth of his resurrection and further enduring the fellowship in his suffering that would come upon them when they acted as his authoritative spokesman in the world and completed the task of setting up his kingdom. There were two other qualifications as well, however, that need to be understood because they support the limitations on the office that we mentioned just a moment ago. Namely, an apostle must have been an eyewitness of the manifestations of Jesus' glory throughout his miraculous ministry, but especially his resurrection from the dead. And he must have been a personal student of Jesus during the course of his ministry, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up, which was a period of about three years. It is noteworthy that less than a month after the crucifixion, in the very city of Jerusalem, only two men could be found who met these qualifications. This would seem to support that the apostolic office was not one that would be filled repeatedly throughout time until the return of Jesus, but rather it was truly limited to a short period in its earthly function in the church. In Acts 2, the things anticipated in Acts 1 come to pass. The Spirit is poured out from heaven by the enthroned King Jesus. He comes to the apostles as the helper and begins to work through them, and their preaching to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The authority and will of King Jesus is revealed on earth, that is, uh, the official establishment of his kingdom is set up. It was signified by the baptism in the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit's presence among them. The followers of Jesus formed into a new community, the church or the congregation of Jesus Christ. The position of the apostles in the infant church is clearly stated in Acts 2.42. Those who were baptized and added to them were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And verse 43, there was a sense of awe felt by all, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It's noteworthy that in Acts 2.38, Peter declared that all who were baptized would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yet whatever that included, it did not evidently include direct instruction from the Spirit or the power to work miracles, because in the new community, those who wished to learn the way of Christ were dependent on the apostles' teaching, and only the apostles are mentioned as working miracles. At this point, something needs to be said about apostolic teaching during this early period in church history. We've observed that the apostles themselves were slow to apprehend certain truths of the gospel, especially the universality of the reign of Christ and the implications and perhaps even the nature of justification by faith. At times, in the Spirit, they spoke truths that extended beyond their own understanding and opinion, for example, the words of Peter in Acts 2.39. The Apostle Paul made it clear that the revelation of the Spirit through the apostles and prophets was progressive and partial until the completion of the New Testament canon, 1 Corinthians 13, 8-10. And at this point, right at the start of the church and for the first few years of her existence, it's very likely that apostolic teaching was generally limited 
to sharing their own testimonies concerning the life and teaching of Jesus and explaining how he was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophetic expectations. Of course, the teaching of Jesus was mostly ethical in nature, especially regarding the application of principles like love and justice and mercy. So if the majority of apostolic teaching was of this kind for the first several years of Christian history, and theological or practical issues of church function and government did not come into focus until a later season— then we can understand even better how the early Jewish Christians saw very little distinction between their Christian discipleship and their old Jewish lifestyle, other than their faith in Jesus himself and the supernatural impact his example had on their relationships with one another. In keeping with Acts 2.42, Acts chapters 3-6 through 6 present the apostles as the teachers of all the disciples, the sole miracle workers, testifying to Jesus, baptizing people, and leading the church until the numbers of disciples became so great that other officers were needed. In chapter 3, a close-up view of the apostolic ministry of miracles shows that the apostles disavowed any personal power or holiness behind the wonders they performed, but rather affirmed that it was Christ at work in them, and this through their faith in him. In chapters 4 through 5, the apostles were supernaturally protected from martyrdom, a rare experience in the history of God's prophets, which highlighted the vital role they were yet to play in the unfolding of his purpose. By Acts 6, we find that the community of believers had grown to a point where the apostles were no longer capable of providing them with all they needed officially as a body. It seems that like Moses during the early stages of Israelite history, the apostles were originally the sole workers, teaching, leading, judging, and serving in every necessary respect. The controversy over the neglect of the Grecian widows in one group of disciples led to the appointment of deacons, and this seems to simply be a narrative specimen of a broader trend that began at this stage. Soon we find elders, evangelists, and enrolled widows in churches. The latter part of Acts 6 also introduces a significant change in the operations of the Spirit in the Church. For the first time in the recorded history of the Christian movement since Pentecost, someone other than an apostle is gifted to work miracles. In the case of Stephen, and then his co-laborer Philip, we are not told how this came about. But in Acts 8, verses 14-17, we learn that the apostles played an integral role in the distribution of the gifts of the Spirit throughout the body of Christ across the world. The process seems to have been as follows. The apostles would pray and ask for a revelation from the Spirit concerning which disciples he willed to endow with miraculous gifts, Acts 8.15. Then the apostles would lay hands on those persons to publicly identify them as the recipients of the gifts, Acts 8.17. Then the Spirit would empower them. 1 Corinthians 12.11. This seems to have been the definite appointed means for the distribution of spiritual gifts. In fact, there is not only abundant additional testimony for the same pattern, see Acts 19.6, Romans 1.11, 2 Timothy 1.6, but there are no recorded exceptions to this rule other than Paul who appears to have received gifts directly from the Spirit as a helper to him in his work as an apostle, which we'll discuss more in a moment. 
the impartation of the gifts of the Spirit by the laying on of hands may very well be that unique divine marker which Paul called the signs of an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12.12. Lancelot Oliver, in his excellent little booklet on the Apostles of Christ, suggested that Paul's comment that the Corinthians were his apostolic letter of commendation, 2 Corinthians 3, 1-3, carried this meaning. He noted that Paul said, In them his accreditation was written not with ink but with the Holy Spirit. And he suggested that this might be a reference to the abundance of spiritual gifts at Corinth. In other words, if anyone doubted that Paul was an apostle, they should just look at the church at Corinth. How could they have received all of these spiritual gifts unless he who was among them was part of that small and select group ordained by Christ to disseminate them? In Acts chapter 9, Paul is added to the apostolic college. He is distinct from the twelve, but of the same class. He, like them, is an apostle of Christ. This would be a point not without controversy in the history of the early church. In fact, Paul has his doubters, critics, and accusers even to this day. Paul called his own apostleship an abnormality, using a figure of speech referring to premature birth in 1 Corinthians 15.8. Because he had not been a disciple of Jesus during his earthly ministry, nor had he witnessed the resurrection during the forty days along with the others. In fact, that brings up the question as to how Paul could be an apostle if he was not qualified according to the criteria we mentioned at the outset of this study. But Paul argues that although his situation was abnormal, it was not illegitimate. Paul did witness the resurrection of Christ on the Damascus Road when Jesus came to him from glory in his glorified physical body. Furthermore, Paul did receive three years of training from Christ during his period in Arabia, at which time the Lord revealed to him the facts and truths of the gospel, including accounts of his own earthly ministry. Luke supports these things in the book of Acts. In fact, it's interesting to consider that in Luke's gospel— His account of the Lord's Supper is very similar to Paul's in 1 Corinthians. Of course, Paul says that he received his account from Jesus himself, 1 Corinthians 11.23. So, while Matthew and Mark offer a credible apostolic testimony to the event, Paul, and by way of Paul, Luke, offer Jesus' own testimony to it. In Paul's own estimation, He was the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15, 9. But this was not because he lacked power or authority from Jesus, or because his ministry was deficient in comparison to the others. Rather, he acknowledges that he felt this way because of his past as a persecutor of the church. All the same, Christ used Paul mightily. The Gospels show the work and care that went into preparing the Twelve, but Paul says that in God's providence, He was separated and prepared in his own way from his mother's womb, Galatians 1.15, and he was used as the apostle to the Gentiles. Not that he had a message that was for them and not for Israel, for he preached the same thing to Jew and Greek, says Romans 1 and verse 16, and not that the other apostles did not minister to the Gentiles, for in the course of history, most of them, besides James, the brother of John, who died in Jerusalem, preached to as many Gentiles as Paul did. 
Rather, Paul was, by his upbringing, his constitution, and his nature, a cosmopolitan man, a man of two worlds. He had the Jewish pedigree, physically and spiritually, to labor effectively among his own people, but he was able to break into the world of the nations in a way that significantly blazed the trail for the twelve to follow after God had finished preparing them. Now, Paul's ministry did not begin fully at once. He was sent away to Tarsus to labor in obscurity until God had accomplished some other important things with the twelve. In the latter part of Acts 9 and into Acts 10 and 11, Peter again takes the stage, and as a representative of the other twelve who were almost certainly engaged in the same things, Luke records his ministry of disseminating gifts and building up the new churches that had been established throughout all Judea and Samaria as a result of the persecution by Paul before he was converted. During one of his tours, a series of miracles and the subsequent bolster they gave to the witness of the gospel led to explosive growth among the disciples in the coastal city of Joppa. This was all providentially arranged so that Peter would be nearby to encounter a God-fearing Gentile in Caesarea and witness his reception of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now recall from earlier studies that the baptism in the Holy Spirit was the phenomenal sign given to Israel that the Messiah had established his kingdom. On Pentecost, it was manifest by Jews praising God in the languages of the Gentiles. In Acts 10, it was manifest by Gentiles praising God in the languages of the Jews. Peter understood the meaning, specifically that God was welcoming Gentiles into his kingdom without requiring them to become Jews. To use the language of Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, God would take a people from the Jews and from the Gentiles and make of the two one new man, Ephesians 2, 13-16. It was necessary for Peter to be involved in this proceeding so that he might bear witness to the saints in Jerusalem, especially his brother apostles, and facilitate a change in their corporate understanding, namely that they would apprehend their own responsibility to leave Judea and make disciples from all the nations in keeping with the Great Commission. There is more, and we invite you to join us next time as we conclude this review of the role of the apostles in Acts. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, tulsachurchofchrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week. 
From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.